We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Psalm 35. Contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take up shield and armor, arise and come to my aid. Brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Say to me, I am your salvation. May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Since they hit their net for me without cause and without cause dug a pit for me, may ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. My whole being will exclaim, Who is like you, Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. Ruthless witnesses come forward. They question me on things I know nothing about. They repay me evil for good and leave me like one bereaved. Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my friend or brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. But when I stumbled, they gathered in glee. Assailants gathered against me without my knowledge. They slandered me without ceasing. Like the ungodly, they maliciously mocked. They gnashed their teeth at me. How long, Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. Among the throngs, I will praise you. Do not let those gloat over me who are my enemies without cease. Do not let those who hate me without reason maliciously wink the eye. They do not speak peaceably, but devise false accusations against those who live quietly in the land. They sneer at me and say, Aha, aha, with our own eyes we have seen it. Lord, you have seen this. Do not be silent. Do not be far from me, Lord. Awake and rise to my defense. Contend for me, my God and Lord. Vindicate me in your righteousness, Lord, my God. Do not let them gloat over me. Do not let them think, aha, just what we wanted, or say, we have swallowed him up. May all who gloat over my distress be put to shame and confusion. May all who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and disgrace. May those who delight in my vindication shout for joy and gladness. May they always say, the Lord be exalted, who delights in the well-being of his servant. My tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praises all day long. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we all come to you this morning with great need. And the truth is we don't even understand the depths of our needs and the ways that we need you. Lord, we come confused, we come discouraged, we come tired, we come hurt, 
We come indifferent. We come doubting. We come questioning whether any of the things that we've been singing about or the words that we've just heard make any difference in what we will have to face when we leave this place, any difference in the things that we will have to face this coming week. And so, God, we need you. We, we need you to meet us wherever we are. We need to hear your voice speaking to us. We need you calling out to us. Uh, we need more than the words of a preacher. We need your spirit. And so we ask that you would give it to us now as we look to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing this sermon series in the Psalms that we're calling Authentic Faith. And in this series, we've been looking at how God wants the real you, uh, not the censored you, not the um, part that you want the part, that part of you that everybody else gets to see, he wants to see the real you, your real worry, your real loneliness, your real anger. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Anger is such a difficult topic. You may have felt uncomfortable reading this psalm just as you were listening to it. Uh, a few years ago, you might, you might have responded the way that these babies did in this study that was done a few years ago. A few years ago at the University of Washington, there was a study about how babies uh, up to the age of 15 months respond to anger. And what they did is they put, you know, they would put a baby in this room where there would be a couple researchers and one researcher would give the baby toys and in a very calm and delightful and playful, engaging voice, invite the baby to play with the toy, and the baby would play with the toy. And then another researcher would come and come with a threatening, angry, frustrated voice. And, well, you can imagine what happened. The baby would not play with the toy. They would take the researcher out of the room and bring the researcher back to the room, the same angry researcher, but this time the angry researcher would be using a fun, delightful, playful voice and the baby would still not play with the toy. You don't need to be very old. You don't need to even be able to speak to understand anger. That's what the thousands of dollars they invested in this study concluded. Right. Uh, anger is something that anybody can understand. You understand when a person is angry even when they express that anger in a different language that you don't speak. Uh, we, we, we see and hear anger in body language. We see it and hear it in tone of voice. Uh, you don't need to understand the words to hear someone saying, back off. And that's actually why anger is a terrible way to get what you want. When you ask for something with an angry tone of voice, people might give it to you, but then they're going to stay away from you, because that's what anger communicates. Back off. Stay away. Leave me alone. And if that's what you're communicating, people will leave you alone. But sometimes we can't help ourselves. Uh, we, sometimes our anger t reaches a tipping point, and then some of us, we, when we get angry, we get aggressive. We vent. 
We say things that we are going to regret. We do things that we're going to regret. And the people who are around us, they feel threatened. Some of us, we get, we get passive aggressive when we reach our tipping point. Our anger doesn't, we don't vent our anger. Our anger just leaks out. We withdraw. We give people the silent treatment. We get very cynical and sarcastic. Uh, our anger looks like, uh, looks calm on, on, on the outside, but people feel the icy cold uh, that, that we're communicating from the inside. Some of us don't understand our anger. We don't even know how to recognize our anger. Our anger looks like constant distraction, or it looks like chronic fatigue, or it looks like restlessness, or it looks like constant headaches. Sometimes uh, we don't even know what we're angry at. Have you ever found yourself in a, in a place like that? You're angry, you don't even know what you're angry at, but you're just angry. And when you're like that for a long time, people learn to expect you to be angry. And so even when you're trying to be nice, people think that you're angry at them. People stay away from you. They, they, they treat you as if you're about to explode. They say that you're rough around the edges, which is code for watch out, tread lightly, don't trigger them. No one actually says that they want your anger, uh, which is why anger is such an uncomfortable thing to think about or talk about. And the amazing, but the amazing thing in this psalm is that God is actually saying, I want your anger. And that's what it means to have a real relationship with the real God who wants the real you. He wants your anger. And what God does is he not only gives you a safe place to be angry, not, he, he gives you more than just a safe place to vent your anger. There are places you could do that. They actually have these places called anger rooms where you can go and just destroy stuff, right? That's not what God is doing here. He's giving you more than just a place to vent your anger, a safe place to be angry. He's actually giving you a place where your anger can be transformed. And that's what we're going to see in this psalm. We're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at good anger, toxic anger, and transformed anger. And we're going to find all of this in this difficult psalm. So let's look at good anger first. Uh, psalm 35 belongs to a family of psalms that are called cursing psalms. The technical theological word for it is imprecatory psalm, which means cursing psalm. I like cursing psalm better. Uh, and and it, you, could, you could feel the anger. You could feel the rage of this psalm. Uh, it's filled with curses, right? Verse, verses 1 through 3, contend, Lord, with those uh, who contend with me, fight against those who fight against me, take up shield and armor, arise and come to my aid, brandish spear and armor, arise and come to my aid. Verses four through six, may those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame, may those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Verse 8, may ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them. 
may they fall into the pit to their ruin. That's just the first stanza of this psalm. There's three stanzas in this psalm. That's just the first one. And then in verse 9, after all those curses, the psalmist says, then, after my enemy is ruined, then my soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. What in the world is going on here? See, anger is not just a part of this psalm. It's actually driving the psalm. That's why it's called a cursing psalm. It's that the psalmist is basically saying, I will be so happy when my enemies get what's coming from them. Praise the Lord. (laughs) This sounds more like a Liam Neeson movie than it does the Bible. What is going on? Why is there so much anger in this psalm? And why is there so many anger in the psalms? Why why is there a category, a family of psalms called cursing psalms? Well, it's because sometimes anger is necessary. Sometimes anger is good. Sometimes anger is exactly the right thing to feel. See, the key to understanding anger in this psalm and other psalms is to to understand the phrase without cause. It appears twice in verse 7. They hid their net for me without cause, and without cause dug a pit for me. It appears again in verse 19. Do not let those gloat over me who are my enemies without cause. Do not let those who hate me without reason maliciously wink the eye. I love that phrase. A malicious eye wink. Have you ever received a malicious eye wink? Or maybe a malicious smile. A gesture of friendliness that actually communicates hatred. Have you ever received that? Have you ever been attacked without cause? That's the key here. That we are being attacked without cause. Have you been attacked, threatened, because of your gender, because of your sexual orientation, because of your age, because of of your ability, because of your race or your ethnicity, because of the language that is your first language, because of your nationality, because of your social class because of your education? Have you ever been attacked without cause? Have you ever been betrayed? The psalmist talks about betrayal in this this, uh, psalm. Uh, he, He talks about how he grieved for someone when they were sick, but they returned that kindness with betrayal. He was, they slandered him. Have you ever been hurt without cause? According to the Bible, when you are hurt without cause, the appropriate emotion to feel is anger. According to the Bible, discrimination and abuse and betrayal and ridicule and all sorts of other ways that you can be attacked without cause actually requires anger. Anger is the right emotion to feel. C.S. Lewis has this book uh, called Reflections on the Psalms. And in a chapter where he's talking about these cursing psalms, he actually describes a night where he was in a room full of soldiers during World War II. 
And what shocked him about these soldiers is that these soldiers were Holocaust deniers. There, there, there had been reports, credible reports, of what was actually happening, the systematic extermination of the Jews and other minorities. And these soldiers were in complete denial, and they actually not, were, were not only in denial, but they treated it casually as if it was no big deal, just government propaganda. And listen to what he writes. He says, now, it seemed to me that the most violent of the psalmists or for that matter, any child wailing out, but it's not fair, was in a more hopeful condition than these young men. What is C.S. Lewis saying? He's saying that evil and injustice are supposed to make you feel angry. Evil and injustice are not supposed to be treated lightly. That's what anger is for. We have this idea that anger is the opposite of love, but it isn't. Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He says that anger is love in motion toward a threat to that which you love. Anger actually is an expression of love. We are angry because the things that we love, the things that are good, the things that are precious are under attack. Anger is love in motion. It races to protect. It moves to stop the threat. It guards what it loves. And, and that is why no one is angrier at evil and injustice than God, because no one loves more than God. And that's why we have cursing psalms. They teach us what good anger looks like, and they, in fact, they actually train us to express good anger for that which is wrong, for that which is evil. But not all, good ang not all anger is good. Sometimes anger can be toxic. And so how do you know the difference between good anger and toxic anger? Well, this brings us to our second point, toxic anger. It's natural for us to identify with the psalmist when we read this psalm. I know that was, my first, that was my first response when I read this as I was preparing to preach it. I thought, like, well, who are my enemies? Who are the people that I could pray this prayer for? Right? Well, we like to all think that our anger is good, that we're in the right and others are in the wrong, but why, why would we assume that? You see, if, if, if we actually are honest with ourselves, we probably should identify with the enemies in this song more than the writer of the song. Because the truth is, all of us have expressed toxic anger more than good anger. Now here's a sobering thought. There may be people out there somewhere in this world who are praying cursing psalms about you. And so how do you know if your anger is good or it's toxic? Well, this psalm teaches us that too, especially as we look at the enemies in this psalm, because these enemies are filled with toxic anger, and they teach us two things about toxic anger. They teach us, one, that toxic anger is misplaced, and two, that toxic anger is controlling. There's actually three things. And three, <laughs> they, te they teach us that toxic anger is punishing 
that it's misplaced, that it's controlling, and that it's punishing. Um, so toxic anger first is misplaced. We see this in this psalm in the phrase that we've been talking about without cause. The enemies in, in Psalm were angry without cause. Verse 20 actually says they devise false accusations against those who live quietly in the land. So toxic anger, the thing about toxic anger is that it actually always feels righteous. It always feels like it is right. Why? Because it's devised false accusations. It's misplaced. It's, a, it's based on a lie, a distortion of the truth. And so toxic anger convinces us when we're right, even when we're wrong. When I'm at a rush at the, the grocery store and I'm waiting in line and someone up at the front is carrying on a pleasant conversation with the cashier, I get angry, right? I get angry, I get frustrated, I, I try to stare at that person and will them to stop as if I'm a Jedi, right? <laughs> well, where, where is that angry anger coming from? What's the cause of that anger? Am I really angry at pleasant conversation? No, I'm angry that my, someone is wasting my time, right? Toxic anger is misplaced. It, 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 it fools us into, us into thinking that we're in the right, that we're justified when actually we're wrong. Toxic anger is also controlling. Verse 8 says, May their, the net they hid entangle them. May the net they hid entangle them. The, the psalmist is actually praying that these toxic people, these enemies, that the things that they're trying to do would trap others would trap them. And that's actually how toxic anger works. Toxic anger has a way of entangling you and trapping you and paralyzing you and imprisoning you. There's a therapist named Don, Dan Allender uh, who wrote this amazing book, Bold Love. It's an old book, highly recommended. He tells a story in that book about a woman uh, that he was counseling, and he describes her this way. He says that she was barbarously and ritualistically abused by her father. At one point, this woman tells uh, Allender that she will never forgive her father. And so Allender asks, what would you do if God gave you the choice between pushing a button on your left, which when touched would utterly destroy your father at this minute, or a button on your right, which would lead to radical deep repentance and the kind of change that would make him the father God intended him to be. She sat motionless for 20 minutes. That's sometimes what counseling is, just sitting 20 minutes for somebody to find the words. And can you guess what she said? She said, if I push the button on the left, then I'm saying I'm as evil as he is. But if I push the button on the right, then I am admitting I really want him to be my father. And I am far more afraid of allowing my heart to feel desire and longing than I am of being evil. If you've ever been deeply hurt, if you've ever experienced abuse, you know how she feels. But here's the thing, anger is not supposed to control you in this way. Anger is not supposed to paralyze you and ensnare you and imprison you in this way. Anger is supposed to be a tool that you use to protect what you love, not to destroy what you hate. See, toxic anger is misplaced, it's controlling, and it's also punishing. 
Psalm 35 is filled not only with the curses of the psalmist, but the curses of his enemies. Except for the enemies, they're not curses, they're actual actions. His enemies are fighting him, verse 1. They're plotting his ruin, verse 4. They're falsely accusing, verses 11 and 20. They betray him, verse 12. They mock him, verse 16. They gloat over him, verse 24. These people are using anger to destroy what they hate. They're not using it to to destroy injustice or evil. They're using it to destroy what they hate. They're using their anger to punish. And some of you might be thinking at this point, well, what's the difference between what those enemies are doing and what the psalmist is doing? Isn't the psalmist praying for the destruction of his enemies? Well, there's a big difference between the anger of the psalmist and the anger of the enemies. Because the psalmist actually does not lift a finger to hurt his enemies. He's praying his anger. He doesn't actually say these things to his enemies. He says these things to God. And the interesting thing about this psalm, if you, if you look in your Bible and the title of the psalm, it says it was written by David. And if you know the story of David's life, he had many enemies, many people who actually tried to kill him, many people who betrayed him, many people who slandered him, many people who threatened him, who mocked him. He experienced all of these things. And yet, if you think of the two biggest enemies in David's life, King Saul, his boss, who tried to have him killed, and then Absalom, his son, who took his throne from him, David actually never lifted a finger to hurt them. In fact, when he had the opportunity to kill Saul, he spared him and showed him mercy. And when Absalom died in warfare, he wept bitterly. David prayed his anger to God, but he never vented his anger at his enemies to punish them. In fact, David's anger was transformed in a radical way so that he could show mercy and kindness to his enemies. How did this happen? This brings us to the last thing we're going to look at in the psalm, transformed anger. One of the strange things about the cursing psalms is how they all lead to worship. And if you look at the last verse of this psalm, it doesn't end in anger. It ends in joy. It ends with praise. It ends with worship. David doesn't say, my tongue will proclaim that the days of my enemies are numbered. He ends this psalm by saying, my tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praises all day long. David's anger was transformed into praise. How did this happen? Well, it hap- first, of, first thing that we need to see here is that it happened in community. In verse 24, David writes, may those who delight in my vindication shout for joy and gladness. May they always say, the Lord be exalted who delights in the well-being of his servant. There were people in David's life who knew enough about his pain and his anger that when he was vindicated, they would rejoice. They would throw a party. They would delight. Uh, there There were people who helped David through his anger. David did not do this alone. 
He needed people around him who knew him, who understood what he was going through. He needed people around him to remind him that God delighted in him in spite of all the hard things that were happening in his life. You see, anger doesn't get transformed in isolation. It gets transformed in community. It gets transformed in friendship. It it, it gets transformed in safe relationships where we can be real and let people know how angry we actually are. It also happened in prayer. David admitted that he was angry. He described his anger in great detail, but he didn't act on his anger. He prayed his anger. He didn't take up the shield and armor. He asked God to take up shield and armor. He didn't put his enemies to shame. He prayed that all who gloat over my distress be put to shame. David didn't take matters into his own hands. He put his anger in God's hands. See, praying your anger is hard because it makes you vulnerable. In fact, being angry makes you vulnerable. That's why sometimes we, we, we try to deny our anger. People say, like, are you okay? And you're like, yeah, I'm not angry, no big deal. Why? Because we don't want to admit that somebody hurt us. But David takes his vulnerability, and he doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to, to b- tell people to back off so that they can't see it. He actually brings his vulnerability to God. And that's the, the, the place where prayer is most powerful. Prayer is most powerful when we are most vulnerable. Because prayer is actually an act of vulnerability. If you're not vulnerable, you're actually not really praying. Prayer is an act of complete dependence. You're saying, I can't do this. I cannot stop these people from mocking me. I can't stop their hurt from destroying me. God, I need you. I need you to save me. I need you to defend me. I need you to hear me. I need to know that you care about what's happening in me. I can't get through this by myself, and my actions, my words will not save me. That's why in verse 17, David says, how long, Lord, will you look on? David has actually been praying for a long time. And if you have ever prayed for the same thing for a long time, you know how vulnerable that can make you feel. And you might have wondered, is, is, is am I doing something wrong? How come my prayer is not working? But actually, that's how prayer works. Because prayer is an act of vulnerability. It's an act of dependence. It's saying, God, I can't do this, so I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to wait on you until you do something because that's what I need. I need you. Prayer waits. Prayer depends. Prayer trusts. Prayer keeps on asking. Prayer says how long, but it doesn't give up. Now, this might sound horrible to you, and you might think, is that all you've got? Give me something more. Give me something better. How, how am I going to deal with my anger? How am I going to deal with the hurt and pain in my life? Well, the amazing thing is that when you bring your vulnerability to God in prayer, it does, God will not leave you vulnerable. He will actually empower you. And there's something mysteriously empowering about prayer. You could see it in the story of Ruby Bridges. In 1960, a six-year-old girl named Ruby Bridges became the first black child to desegregate William Franz Elementary School in New Orleans. Every day, she entered the school with uh, federal marshals, passed an angry mob that would yell at her, curse at her, mock her, 
This was a mob of adults and children. She was the only student in the school because everyone else in the school boycotted the school just because of her presence. A psychologist from Harvard, Robert Coles, uh, volunteered to provide counseling for Ruby and her family. And one day, the, the, the psychologist witnessed Ruby talking to the angry mob on her way into the school. And later that day, he asked her, what, what was she talking about? And Ruby told him, oh, I wasn't talking to them. I was praying for them. And the psychologist said, well, why? Why would you do that? Why would you pray for them? And she said, well, because they needed praying for Eventually, Ruby's mom came into the room, and she told them that they actually pray for those people every night as a family. And then she told them they pray for those people every Sunday, that their minister leads the entire church in prayer for those people every Sunday. That night, Robert Coles, he went home to his wife. He was frustrated. He thought it was too much. The parents were putting too much on Ruby. This was not healthy for her. It was not healthy for her to feel like she needed to pray for people who were hurting her. And his wife said, what would you do if you were going through a mob like that twice a day? And so Robert Cole said, well, I called the police. She said, Ruby can't call the police. He said, I'll call my lawyer. She said, Ruby doesn't have a lawyer. He said, well, I would tell those uneducated people how wrong they were. And she said, Ruby doesn't have an education. She's six. She doesn't have a PhD in psychology. The psychologist, Robert Coles, he, he concludes with this. He says, the great paradox that Christ reminds us about is that sometimes those who are lonely and hurt and vulnerable, meek, to use the word, can be touched by grace and show the most extraordinary kind of dignity, and in that sense inherit not only the next world, but even moments of this one. He was so inspired by Ruby Bridges that he wrote a book about her, the story, a children's book, the story of Ruby Bridges. See, prayer is an act of vulnerability, but God does not leave you vulnerable. He empowers you. When you, pray, when you pray your anger, God will transform your anger into praise. He will turn it into praise. He will replace your fear with gratitude. He will replace your hostility with peace. He will empower you to show kindness in the face of cruelty and forgiveness in the face of hate. And only a powerful person can do that. How do we know that he'll do it? How do we know that we can be empowered when we make ourselves vulnerable in the presence of God? We know because Jesus was also hated without cause. You know, Psalm 35 is quoted in one place in the New Testament, John 15, verse 25. Jesus says, but this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. He hated, they hated me without cause. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying Psalm 35 was about me. That wasn't about David. That was about me. Because I was hated without cause. And you see, that's what sin ultimately is. 
Sin is more than just breaking rules in a book. Sin is hating God without cause. That's what sin is. That's what makes sin so horrible. We're, 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 we're taking a God who is holy and perfect, who created everything, a God who is good to us, who provides for us, who loves us, and we're hating him without cause. Without cause, for no good reason. Our, our hate, our anger is misplaced. It's controlling us. And we're actually trying to punish God with our disobedience, with our rejection of him. Jesus is saying we hated him without cause cause. But the incredible hope of the gospel is that when we hate God without cause, he responds not by hating us with cause. He responds by loving us without cause. You understand what that means? He loves you without cause. There's no reason that you could give God to make him love you. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't need to prove your worth to him. You don't need to manage your anger perfectly. You don't need to promise that you'll be better. God meets you where you are, and he loves you without cause. He doesn't love you because of who you are, what you've done, or what you promised to do. He loves you because he loves you, because that's who God is. It is an unconditional love. It is a gracious love. It is a free love. It's a love that he gives you without cause. He loves you even when he has cause to hate you. And this is the beautiful promise of this table. At this table, God proclaims through Jesus, who died for your anger, who rose again for your anger, and who promises to transform your toxic anger into good anger, who promises to defend you from everyone else's anger, God at this table says, I love you without cause. It doesn't matter how much you've messed up this past week. It doesn't matter how far you've been from me. It doesn't matter how little you've thought of me. At this table, God is saying, I love you not because of you, not because of what you've done. I love you because I love you, and I'm even willing to go to the cross for you. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you get angry for all that hurts us, all the wrong that we experience in this life. And God, we thank you that your response for all the wrong that we have done is love, a love without cause, a love that we find here at this table, a love that can only be found in Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to believe this, that you truly love us and that your love would transform us, not only our anger but our whole lives, and that you would bring us into a deeper life of dependence and vulnerability before you where we can be changed by you, where we can meet you, and we could see and experience the wonder of the God who is at work even when we don't see you. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.